So today is Christ the King Sunday, and it's actually quite a new idea. The, the liturgical day might be familiar to many of us, but it's a new idea. It's less than 100 years old, and uh, Bridget was researching it this week, and we discovered that actually as totalitarianism took hold in Europe during the interwar years, the church wanted to stand up and say to the likes of Mussolini and others, that no matter what these great earthly powers might like to claim for themselves, ultimately there is but one king, Jesus Christ. So today, the question for us all is, is he your king? Is Jesus your king? Let's turn, please, to Mark chapter 14. As we turn to Mark 14, in verse 3 we read this. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came. Uh, Two very quick and extraordinary things. First, he's in a leper's house, which you do not go into. The best explanation, I think, is that Simon the leper has been healed. He's no longer a leper. So he is now, if you like, a walking testimony to the power of Jesus Christ to heal. Second, mixing men and women together at a meal was Very wrong in that culture. And so we see here Jesus rewrites the rules, a reclining testimony to the authority of Christ here at this table. And they're little tiny details showing us that something in this encounter is going to be extraordinary. And then the big details come. She, this woman, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Nard is a luxury perfume of some kind. It could be solid, like a salve, or, or you know, like a chapstick or something, and it could be a liquid, like a, a very runny oil. And this was an expensive commodity in the ancient Near East. It came from India, it was difficult to extract, and it had traveled a long way. So if you had some nard, you would use it in the tiniest of amounts. An entire flask of not just nard, but pure nard, literally in the Greek, trustworthy nard, which is kind of a fun way to use that word, pure nard, would have been an utterly extraordinary thing to possess. Most people would not have a thing like that, and uh, it was probably worth an entire year's wages. Just this one flask was a whole year's income. So in that society, very, very few women could afford to obtain something like this for themselves with their own resources. And many commentators have therefore assumed that this flask of nard was given to her, like like an heirloom or something uh, inherited, perhaps. This flask could well represent everything that she had. Family status, security in her old age. This flask could be her retirement plan. It's a big deal. Mark records for us how she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. There is no turning back. This is a total gift that she's making right here. This is not a miserable little dribble. You know, whoop, that's enough. This is everything. There is no turning back. It is completely shattered. 
One ancient translation of Scripture, I forget which one, uh, says that the flask was broken to shivers, uh, like shiver me timbers. It was uh, like a shipwreck, splintered. That The flask is obliterated, and there is no turning back. It is a wreck. It is done. And then the disciples in the room start to react. Look at how they react with me. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, beautiful word, agonectao, like the English word agony. It agonizes them to see this thing. It pains and grieves them to see this thing broken. They were pained, and they said, why was the ointment wasted? What's going on? Why have you wasted this? They're infuriated. They're, 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 this is gut-wrenching for them to see. Wasted is another great word, apolia. Um, like uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, Satan is apolion. Uh, it means uh, it's a word for hell. It's a word for ruin, perdition, and pernicious waste. It is a word ordinarily that is used to describe the experience of a soul in hell. Why have you wrecked and ruined this beautiful thing? It agonizes our souls to see the waste. And the reason comes in verse 5. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. It's a really good point. I mean, they're well on to something here. Throughout Scripture, consistently, we see, of course, that the Lord has a peculiar care for the poor. In many ways, the Bible teaches us that the poor are God's top priority. So, for example, under the law, Deuteronomy 15 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, not optional, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor. In their cultural sayings, they just said this stuff to each other all the time. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. When you take a resource like this that could be used to look after the poor, and you use it and you waste it like this, you insult God himself. This is very wrong indeed. Just a few chapters before this in Mark 10, when Jesus meets a rich young man who's done almost everything right his whole life. This guy is really good. Mark records, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. The only thing standing in that man's way was his love of money and his corresponding neglect of the poor. After the death of Christ, so we've got the law, we've got these proverbs, we've got in the presence of Christ, and now after the death of Christ, so this is a clean sweep of Scripture. James 2.15 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is not possible for a regenerate soul to be stingy. It's not possible. And if you do nice things for yourselves, but you neglect the poor, you are dead, says James. Hellbound. So powerful 
I think, have become our cultural kings in this environment that many of us will see what is written down here in the word in front of us. I want it open because it's not my idea, it's God's. And we'll squirm a little bit. And then we will ignore the point. There are some of us this morning who will feel a pang of guilt at these words. For others, we will take offense. And there'll be a response of some kind in the room right now, which is the thing I'm looking for. But then we will move on. That's how it works. Have you ever seen a middle schooler walk into a room just out of interest? Here's an example of how they do it. It goes something like this. Oh, Dad! Hi, Dad! Dad, Dad, you'll never guess what, Dad! And then Dad's left there like this, going, what? Because he's been sucked into his phone again. Don't do that, church. Don't get distracted. Don't walk in with a funny song and a dance on a Sunday morning. And then say, oh, Pastor, this is an amazing thing. And then get sucked into your lives. Don't hear this point. And then resolve to do something about this point. And then get so lost in your life that you lose your life. Do not do that, church. The disciples have a powerful point for us this morning. You've done something very wrong, they say to this woman. Perhaps even something soul-threateningly wrong, they say to her, and then they scolded her. Then comes the finger wagging. They speak to her in a way that no Western pastor would ever speak to his congregation as he tries to preach them into financial obedience. So pretty dodgy delivery, actually, by our standards from these disciples. But they have a point. The poor always come first, with very, very few, very, very specific biblical exceptions. And we're about to find them all. Verse 6. But Jesus said to her, leave her alone. Back off, boys. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. If you're so bothered about the poor, go and help them. I think he's calling their bluff a little bit. Seeing that actually the objection is somewhat spurious. And actually... They don't care about the poor. They want the resource for themselves. And then he says to them, you always have the poor. Quoting, I suspect, the very law from Deuteronomy 15 that is on their minds. And then he says, but you will not always have me. Jesus says, I, Jesus, for some reason, outrank the poor. And therefore, this gift is not a waste. It is beautiful. It is an even better use of her money. So under what possible circumstances could that be true? Under what circumstances could something that is ordinarily egregiously wrong in fact be, in the words of Christ, beautiful? Why would you ever lavish an expensive oil like this and get it right? Let's turn briefly. You can hear it or turn to it. I'll read it for you in in total anyway. But let's turn to our first reading from 1 Chronicles 11. In verse 2, The Lord your God said to David, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. 
So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. You anoint a king. There's a circumstance where this would be appropriate. You anoint a king. If God chooses someone to lead his people and to rule over them and to lead them into life and to fight for them and to protect them and to shepherd them and to save them, you anoint that person. There's a biblical exception. Even though it's lavish, the coronation of a king. Even though, of course, the oil that is used to anoint a king and all the other things that are used in the coronation of a king, even though, of course, those things could have been used to help the poor. And yes, the poor comes first. The ceremony of anointing a king is more important. It outranks the command, and it is not a waste if it is a king that you anoint. Now, if we could perhaps turn to the psalm for the day. The one appointed for today. You can use the one in the bulletin if you like, the liturgical form uh, formatted for us to say together. And as you see it there, it says, Behold, how good and joyful a thing it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard. See the quantity. Even Aaron's beard and went down to the edges of his clothing. You also anoint an Old Testament priest. There's another use of this oil. The anointing of an Old Testament priest would set them apart for their priestly role. It would consecrate or make them holy, prepare them for ministry. And it's not a little tiny dribble. You see how it soaks them. There's an enormous quantity of oil at the anointing of a priest. Gallons of the stuff that runs down the beard and down the head and down to the foot of the robes. It is not a waste if you anoint a king. It is not a waste if you anoint a priest. And it seems abundantly clear to me, of course, that Jesus Christ is both. He is both the ultimate new covenant king and the ultimate great high priest who intercedes for us and enables us to know the Father. He serves and he pleads and he saves and he leads. But neither of these truths is where Jesus goes in his discussion with the disciples. There is one more special occasion, one more exception to this rule, one more time where oil is used like this, and it is the thing that is so powerfully at the forefront of Jesus' mind at this moment. Verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You anoint a corpse. That's what this word body means. There's two Greek words for body, sarx and soma. He could have said flesh. He could have said flesh and bone. But he says corpse. Describing himself, this living man, as a dead man walking. Here's the unique thing about Christ the King. Christ has both a crown and a cross. This image on the cover of the bulletin actually was an image that we created nearly seven years ago. Um, just over seven years ago, for the funeral of, of my friend Bill Rodewald and uh, Betsy. And if you're watching at home, I think you are. Uh, you, you may remember this image of the cross and the crown. It's the unique thing about the kingship of Christ. He has both of these things, a cross and a crown. And Jesus lays down that crown that it is his right 
to take up that cross that we deserved. That's the unique thing about Jesus Christ. And Jesus is worth far more than a jar of nard. But he gives it all up for us. Jesus Christ lavishes on the cross his life in exchange for ours. It's an abundant gift. And it's not a waste. Jesus' life is not wasted on the cross either because he loves you. He was willing to pay it all in exchange for you. So who do you want as your king? Live, we're watching the disciples work this out in Mark 14. The disciples are are still working this out. There's at least two people, though, in the room who've already made up their mind. And through these two characters in the passage, Mark just gives us two radically different studies in response to Christ the King. First, we have the woman, verse 9. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wherever the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is exposited and shared in a winsome way, and the lights go on and people click and start to receive the good news that his perfect life was exchanged in lavish amounts for you and for yours, for the unlimited price of your redemption. Whenever someone feels in the room as though this might be the moment that they are about to turn to him and see it for the first time and receive life, this response of total trust and abandonment and generosity will be told, says Jesus Christ. This woman will be remembered. There's no plaque on the wall for this lady. There's no endowment in her name. There's no edifice like a building or a bridge or a buy a brick campaign. She has no need for monumentalism and tawdry displays of wealth like we do. Because she's comprehended that Christ is the king who gives it all. So her response is to give it all as well. Because she gets it. Now, annoyingly, our Bible translation breaks up the passage. (laughs) Uh, We have these little headings in Scripture, and they're designed to help us find our way around, but they're not part of the original word. And I think this heading that we've got here rather disturbs the point that Mark would like to make. Because not every person in the room seems to get it. And there's another response that we find in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Judas cannot stand to see this thing. He hates it. It agonizes him to see how this resource is used. He cannot stand to see valuables given to Christ in this way. The explanation of who Christ really is doesn't land for Judas. This still looks inappropriate to him. Because he cannot see the reality of who Jesus really is. Uh, He cannot see that Jesus is really a king, and so this is appropriate, that Jesus is really a priest, and so this is appropriate. And in fact, not just a king and a priest, but the king who rules over all of eternity, and the priest who restores our relationship to Christ through his sacrifice once and for all. He does not give money to Jesus. He makes it out of Jesus instead. 
Matthew records that Judas, in exchange for Jesus, made 30 pieces of silver, which is a tidy sum, but it's about 70 pieces short of the value of a jar of nard. And it is infinitely short of the value of the life of Christ. For Judas, Christ is not the king. So wherever the gospel is proclaimed, his story is told as well, but with a very different ending. And the tragedy is that even after all of that betrayal, because Christ is such an abundantly beautiful king, yet Judas could have been restored. He could have been forgiven. Because whatever the price of Judas' sin was, the price of Christ's grace was greater. Jesus still could have loved him, but Judas missed so much grace in exchange for money. So let me ask the same question of all of you this morning. Who are you in this account? Who actually are you? Are you the leper, maybe, that was a complete mess, and you've been restored by Jesus Christ to grace alone? Are you the woman who gets it? And wants to give it all. Are you the 11 disciples who start off shocked. But something is starting to make sense right now. And you are about to see who Jesus really is. Or are you the one who never will? Who are you? Is the image on the cover of this bulletin for you really what faith is all about? Is that a good graphic for you of what your faith is? Or would you be far more comfortable to delete this cross and exchange it instead for a dollar sign? Would that be better? Would you like that more? Is this Christ the King Sunday? Or is this cash the King Sunday? You decide. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I stand before you, a broken man who has never obediently used his money properly. We all stand before you, Lord Jesus, as sinners. We all stand before you, doubtless, as a bit of a mix of those four character groups. And yet, that's the point. I thank you that you are so abundantly gracious that though you are a perfect king, Of all that you could have done, you chose the cross. Thank you for lavishing your life in exchange for ours, giving us a sense of our value to you. So, Lord Jesus Christ, as we wrestle with our vulnerabilities and the false gods of of this age, the false kings of this town, would you please convict us and then show us that grace that the woman saw. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.